All right, good evening, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34, that's where we'll be tonight, Exodus 34. Let's start off with some prayer. Lord, we thank you for this evening and the worship time we've had and the kids being taught and the the Wednesday school teachers pouring out their hearts into these little ones. and, um, And then our hearts are open and receptive to everything you have for us. And so we pray that you'd have your way here at this place. Um, we've come, um, well, as your servants, but as your friends and as your sons and daughters and as students. And so, God, I pray that you teach us by your Holy Spirit. Would you use your sword, the Word of God, to do whatever you want to do in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight in chapter 34, Moses makes the new commandments, the new testaments, he, <laughs> the new tablets. He broke the first set when he was upset coming down from the mountain. It turned out that everything that God had written down on those Ten Commandments uh, in the tablets, they were breaking in the process of him receiving those. And, of course, that was quite a lesson in and of itself, that the Ten Commandments were never meant to keep people from sinning. It was only to show people that they were. Of course, they're good to know. We want to know what God expects of us and what he likes to see and his children, what does obedience look like? But it was also meant to be a tutor to point us to the fact that, well, you're, you're broken at the very core as human beings. We, we have a fault. We have a sin nature that by definition and by its own nature causes us and desires for us to do our own thing, our own will. We are truly created in the image of God. We're free to choose or to choose not to follow God and to obey his word. And so the writing simply showed us God's heart for us, his, his likes and his dislikes, what he expects from us, and it was meant to show us that our will oftentimes doesn't line up with his, and, and, and we need a mediator. We need a fix. We need something uh, that's going to correct that issue, that problem, that sin nature, and that was to point us to Jesus. So he broke the ten. It's all right. He broke them, and uh, I mean, I do like the spotlight here, and I really don't think I can go on without it. (laughs) He broke the ten and made them drink it, and it was meant to show them you had some serious problems, and you need to, to straighten up and fly right. What you're doing with Aaron is not okay. So he begged God, interceded on behalf of the people after he chewed them out, um, for God to take them back to understand that they're just dust. And God says, I knew that the whole time. And that's really what this next chapter is about. Chapter 34 is about God receiving them and receiving us. How the mediation worked. And how God heard the prayers of this mediator, Moses. And encourages us as new believers, because we don't live in this anymore. We We have a new mediator, the mediator, Jesus Christ, who brings us to the Lord and and is praying for us and interceding for us. And so, verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you. And let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone, a couple blank slates up there. There's probably a whole lot that we could pull from that or maybe springboard off of, and I don't want to make too much of it. He truly is just giving him a new copy. I think it's important that Moses makes the new tablets. There's a reason God didn't cut them out like he did before. He makes it a point to say, Moses, you're the, ones that, you're, you're the one that broke that. It could have been a mild rebuke from God. I didn't tell you to break those. That was in your own anger and your own um, frustration with the people. God never said, break them, make them drink it. That was all Moses' idea. Later on, Moses' anger is going to get the better of him again. When he strikes the rock a second time, and that's going to that's gonna put him out of going into the promised land. He misrepresents God. At that time, 
with the smiting of the rock a second time. We'll read that later. He did misrepresent God. Now, here he didn't necessarily misrepresent God. God was angry with them and was about to take them out, and so breaking it was acceptable to God, but not here. And brings us to another point, I think. We really have to be led by the Spirit and have to know the heart and mind of God for every situation before we can say, absolutely, this is how it needs to be handled. When you ask me questions as a pastor, how do you think I should deal with this situation? What should I do next? Honestly, I can tell you what the scriptures say, but I can probably point to three scriptures that will give you three different answers on the same subject because it really depends on the situation, the person, the timing, all of that. You really have to be led of the Spirit. Which brings me to another truly a springboarded topic here, which came up to me while I was worshiping and singing We're coming very close to a place in our walk with the Lord as a nation or as a church where you're going to really have to be listening to the Holy Spirit. And that is really going to be the only guide of truth that you're going to have. You won't have any other, you won't be able to go by sight. Sometimes there's, we know that, the Bible tells us, we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. That's very important. And we understand that, and we've memorized that, and we've used that several times in our lives, but I truly believe there's going to come a time, and I believe it's soon, where you will really have to walk by the Holy Spirit because what you're seeing and hearing in any way, shape, or form is really going to have to be questioned. You have to be led by the Spirit. There was actually a moment in time um, where the church in China was growing so rapidly, growing so well, and being under such persecution, and still is, don't get me wrong, it's not like they've accepted that at all. In fact, it's grown worse over the last 10 years. That they would just pray for the Holy Spirit to lead them, guide them to the next meeting place. There was no secret handshake. There was no code. There was no pieces of paper left. They would pray and let the Holy Spirit guide them, and they met at the right place. Now, we smile and are excited about that, and isn't that amazing? But that takes some practice, and that takes some serious tuning as far as hearing our shepherd's voice. I'm not saying that's where we are now. But I I don't want to have any illusions into thinking that this is going to all clear up eventually, that we're going to get back to normal. The Bible just doesn't give us that kind of assurance at all in any way. As we read through the Bible, as we study the Bible, we see where the end is heading, where we, where we end up anyway. At what point along that road to the book of Revelation we get taken out of here, I don't know if it's after Ezekiel 38, if it's after this war, that war, this prophecy, that. I know it's before the Antichrist shows up, but I don't know what that looks like up until then. We don't have a lot of clear prophecies about the United States. In fact, we're really not mentioned at all, which is a little disconcerting in and of itself. You know, where are we? So, very important we're led by the Spirit and start practicing that. And if you don't know what that looks like or what that feels like, it's a good time now, as we've been told tonight or encouraged tonight to walk by the Spirit, to start working that out. To let let that be the most important and loudest voice and cause you to move regardless of what the circumstances look like around you. When you hear that still small voice, when you hear the Lord leading you and moving you in a direction to go in that direction only because he said so and that's enough. Not because you see confirmation coming from anywhere else, but because the Holy Spirit's led you to do that. So he's got these blank slates. He's going up on the mountain again. It's the same scenario. Nobody gets to come up on top of the mountain. It's still just you and Moses. Let no one else show up. And he makes an appointment with Moses. This time, be ready tomorrow. Present yourself. I'll be expecting you. Kind of formal, actually. More formal than I probably make my relationship out to be with God than... um, it probably should be a little more formal. I, I, he calls me friend, and I, I believe he's with me all the time, and I can pray with him all the time. But there might be times when I just need to be a little more formal with him. 
Present yourself to me at this time. And then show up on time. Prepared. Tablets in hand. Pen in my hand. Lined notebook. Bible open. Ready to encounter the true and living God. Not just study at an old ancient, ancient manuscript. But to truly let the Holy Spirit take me to school. You know. Ready to write down everything he has for me. Moses makes his appointment. Verse 5, now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Stood? Who's this? That could be Jesus or it could just be some form that Moses is able to see. But he didn't just show up in kind of an aberration or a kind of a strange form of a cloud that spoke with lightning bolts. And, and you know, that's how we see it on TV, you know. God says, and the lightning kind of goes with the words. He stood with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is what Moses had hoped for, God passing before him. And I think it's interesting as Moses says, I just want to see what you look like, that that isn't what God does, is lets him see his white flowing hair and his really cool robes and, and all those things. He ties his revealing of himself to Moses with proclaiming who he is. He ties it to his word. God doesn't make that distinction. You can't just describe God with, well, he's got some long, I mean, the Bible does at, at times tell us about his white beard and his white hair and his eyes of fire and his feet with burnished bronze. You know, it does describe him physically. But when God says, if you want to see me, you've got to know me, and he wants him to know him. I don't want you to recognize me. I want you to know me, and he describes his character. God proclaims, I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. I keep mercy for thousands, I'm forgiving the iniquities and transgressions and sins. That's New Testament stuff there. It's the same God. But he also then describes him, the rest of his characteristics, which we seem to equate more with the Old Testament, kind of the wrath and the judgment side of God. I don't clear the guilty. If they don't want my forgiveness, they're going to bear it. Justice is coming, whether it's upon my son or upon the sinner's head, it's up to them. I visit the iniquity to the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, he's not saying that once he curses you, that your kids are cursed, your grandkids are cursed, and we all reap the benefits of great-great-grandpa's sin, no, that's not what he means. Some will teach that. Some do teach that generational curse. It's false. It's a false doctrine. It's a false teaching. Heard it here tonight. Please take that home with you. I'll give you scriptures to back that up. There's quite an attack on your faith once you become a believer in Jesus. It's amazing where it comes from sometimes. Some of the most damaging attacks upon your faith will be from other well-meaning Christians who don't understand the scriptures. And one of those attacks will be this. First one, I'll go over that, that God doesn't forgive necessarily transgressions. You'll hear that. Transgressions means you've trespassed. You've, you've been told what not to do, and you went ahead and did it willfully. That's a transgression. You've willfully gone and done something you know specifically God doesn't want you to do. God doesn't forgive those sins, they'll tell you. It's absolutely false. We have scripture right here telling us from God's own mouth, I forgive iniquity, transgressions, and sins. In case there's any confusion, sin is simply missing the mark. You aim for a, as a, like with a bow and shoot your arrow over there and you miss. I was trying to reach God and to aim for righteousness and to shoot, and I, but I missed sin. They call it sin. You missed, you missed the mark. God expects perfection. You have to be perfect. Well, I sinned. Iniquity is kind of a blending of those two, transgressions and sin. 
Transgression is really knowing what you're not supposed to do and going to do it. And he says specifically, I keep mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's a promise that you need to hold on to. You're not beyond the grasp of grace. You're not beyond God's forgiveness. Nobody is. Nobody's beyond God's forgiveness. Nobody has sinned so much that they can't be forgiven. And you could probably think of a few names that might challenge that. In history especially. Some pretty crazy guys that have built up quite a reputation of sin. But even they can be forgiven. Even they can go to heaven. So there's nobody that can outdo God's grace. His grace is much larger than any sin, transgression, or iniquity. All of them. But he says, I don't clear the guilty. It isn't a blanket thing where I I died for the sins of the world and they just don't know it, but they'll figure it out when they get up to heaven. That's universal salvation. That's another attack that'll come upon you. Different verge, different way. Isn't it funny how some people, the legalists will say, well, you're not even forgiven for your transgressions, just your sins. Oh, thanks for that. That's really horrible because that means none of us in this room are saved, by the way. Because we've all sinned in an area that we know we shouldn't have sinned in, but we've done it anyway. So does that disqualify us all? Of course not. But the other attack comes from the other way, comes from what they believe is a loving kind of grace where everybody's just saved, they just don't know it yet, but when they get to heaven, they'll figure it out. Most of the world is banking on that one. They love Christmas, and they look at Christmas like, yep, there was this, some kid was born sometime, I don't know what it was, his name was Jesus, and I think he died for the sins of the world. Christmas card told me so. So I'm banking on that without any other understanding. No, no, it's, you've got to call upon the name of Jesus, you have to, You have to repent. You have to turn towards him. You have to trust in him for your salvation. You've got to be born again. You must be born again. But they just kind of think it's a blank slate where everybody's saved. That's not true either. I visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I'm going to continually be the same God no matter what generation it is. And my sin is still sin here as it is over there. Hundreds of years later, generations of years, generations later, I'm still judging these sins. They're still sins. They don't change. There's only one sin that can't be forgiven. It's in Matthew 12, verse 31. Everybody wants to know that that is, right? That's a good thing to know. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. And why is that? Well, this is doctrine. This is something we have to understand about the salvation of Jesus. The mission of the Holy Spirit, he tells us of Jesus. So it goes without saying, if I don't believe the testimony of the Holy Spirit telling me about this Savior, Jesus, who died for me, and I reject that message, how can I have Jesus as the forgiveness for my sins? You reject the message of the Holy Spirit. You reject his purpose. You blaspheme him. Yeah, whatever. I don't believe it. You reject him and his message of Jesus Christ. You don't have Jesus. You can't be forgiven. As far as to the third and fourth generation, Ezekiel 18. It's a, the whole chapter is amazing, starting in verse 19 all the way to the end. I won't read it all to you, but you could read it if you want to get a good understanding. But the the prophet Ezekiel says, yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? How come the son doesn't bear the guilt of the father? The answer, because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. We're all personally responsible for our just choices and decisions. So it's not saying that we're going to pass on the punishment that I deserve for my sins. My kids aren't going to have that punishment from God. They may feel the repercussions. If I'm a horrible father and do this, that, or the other thing, 
whatever that is. It could be anything. Just a bad dad. My sins will grow up under that. And there'll be a lot of untangling and a lot of figuring out what what does a good father look like because I didn't have a good father. All I had was a bad father, and that's all I grew up with. And so there's a lot of learning. There's a lot of undoing that God has to do. And it takes some time to be around the loving father in the Bible to know what a good father looks like. Someone who's long-suffering, someone who's patient, someone who's kind and gentle, loving, who has compassion for you, who understands who you are, that you're weak, that you're little. Some dads that have raised some kids that didn't know any of that stuff, expected these little kids to be like they were. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you have had those times, and God is undoing that in your lives and trying to show you, no, no, no. And so we do feel the repercussions of bad parenting, or we do feel the repercussions of bad choices. But we don't feel the wrath of God for dad's sin. And every one of us can make a choice as to whether we're going to continue on in that sin that dad did or not, but it'll be our choice. If my dad was an alcoholic, it's up to me to decide whether I'm going to be an alcoholic or not, but I cannot blame him. It's my choice as to what I do with that and any other sin that we experienced in our childhood. Verse 8, so Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Why did he do that? Because God passed before him and exclaimed, and proclaimed to him, I am merciful, I am gracious, I am long-suffering, I'm abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands of forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. And that causes him to just bow down and worship him. He hastens to bow down and worship him. Now that's someone who, after being in, coming in contact and understanding the character of God and who he is, truly understands that, is hastens to worship. They run to worship. They can't bow down fast enough. They can't get on their knees soon enough. You don't have to talk him into it, you know. You don't have to get him riled up to get him to raise his hands or to worship God or to fall on his face before the Lord or to surrender his life over to the Lord. You don't have to do that kind of stuff. When you come encounter when you encounter the true and living God, this is just kind of what happens. And if this hasn't kind of happened, I'm pretty sure you don't know him. You need to know him. You'll never see him in people. You'll see glimpses of the Lord in people as they reflect his character in their lives because he's in them. But you need to encounter the true and living God yourself. You've got to be born again. You have to. That's something to ask for. That's something to seek out. You want this moment that Moses has here. Everybody needs this time where God passes before you personally, shows himself to you, who he is, what he's like, how he loves you. You understand his character. You see his majesty, and you can't help but fall down and worship. Then he said, after he bowed down to worship, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, Let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Please take us as your inheritance. It's a neat way to put it. That's said again in Ephesians. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1.18. He says the same thing. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, God's calling, What are the riches of the glory of God's inheritance in the saints? His inheritance in the saints. It's always been kind of a mystery. That's how he sees you. That's how he sees me as saints. That we're his inheritance. Everybody likes inheritance. Most people like inheritance, you know. Hey, I got some inheritance. I'm going to buy some land, you know. Usually it means a lot of money, you know. When God wonders about his inheritance, I mean... You kind of wonder, what could God get? He kind of has everything. Isn't that interesting? He actually made people in his image that could possibly be not his. Everything else in the universe is his. Everything in creation is his. We give him glory and credit for that, knowing who he is. But he actually made us and gave us the opportunity to not be his if we don't want him. 
You can reject him. We're still made by him. We still have his fingerprint. We're still made in his image, but we're not his inheritance until you choose him. And he can't wait for that, to see you in heaven, to see me in heaven. It's an exciting thing for him. I don't know if he looks over at the angels or says, hey, I'm getting my inheritance today. So-and-so's graduating from that life to this, you know. It's an inheritance. Beautiful thing that that's how he considers us. That's how he loves us. So Moses says, would you let us be your inheritance? Would you, even though we're a stiff-necked people, that's a good, humble way to talk to the Lord. I know I'm stiff-necked. God had mentioned that last week, you know. We're kind of a stiff-necked people. I know we are. Would you, would you forgive us and take us anyway as we are? Yes. And he said, Behold, I will make covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The word awesome isn't really the California version of awesome, you know. Awesome. It's more like awesome. Like it could be the Northern Lights. That's awesome. Awe inspiring. It can be an earthquake. That's awe inspiring also. God says, the things I'm going to do with you are going to be awesome. Now, he doesn't say good or bad. It's just going to be whatever you choose. And the, the neat thing about that is, and I think we've mentioned that before several times, is that we're, we're going to be a proverb either way, either a good proverb or a bad proverb, but either way we're going to show truth in our lives. That's kind of how it is with Israel. When they're, when they're obedient, the, the world is going to see what it looks like to be obedient with this God. When they're disobedient, the world's going to see what it's like to be disobedient to this God. Either way, God's going to be revealed in them. And so all the people of the world, which is really what he's trying to do, talk about street witnessing. It's the first street witnessing we see here. You know, I'm going to take you as my people just like you are, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and the world, all the people of the earth, is going to, they're all going to watch the works that I do for you, in you. And that's what he does with us as believers. We are witnesses, living epistles, Paul calls us, living epistles. Books uh, of the Bible that are just living. You're not read, but you are, you're watched. And the world is watching each and every one of us live out our lives for Jesus or not live out our lives for Jesus. And they're going to see it all. And they're going to witness it all. And that's what God wants. I want the whole world to know me. I want them to know who I am. And the best way I can do that is to pick a people and be their God. And Paul, I think, understood that towards the end of his life. He just picked me. I mean, he did pick the worst of the worst, actually. Paul was the one persecuting the church at the time. And God says, yeah, that'd be a good one to pick. And Paul received the Lord. And the world got to see all of the Sanhedrin, how do you, how do you minister to the, the, the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation that absolutely hates Jesus Christ and everything that has to do with Christianity? How do you minister to a group like that? Well, you take one of their guys and you get them saved. And they receive you and they watch that. And boy, he was smart. And they didn't know what to do with someone like that. He would go into the synagogues, regardless of how bad he was going to get beaten that day, and he would minister and tell people about Jesus. And they would beat him up, and he'd say, again, you know, let's do it again the next day. To the point where he had a traveling physician with him named Luke, who would patch him up and send him back in. Luke was the guy with the stool in the corner, you know. You got this, Rocky. (laughs) Get back in there. Never see that movie again the same, will you? When you watch it, that's, that's like Luke. And he would go back in. And I think that's one of the greatest testimonies in the New Testament about the truth of Jesus Christ, his resurrection and his word, was that these guys had nothing to gain from it. We sang a song tonight that really drove that home. There's just something about, um, I wish I remembered the words exactly, but it was just, I look up there like it's still there. The... I'll, I'll paraphrase it the best I can. Eventually, no matter what happens, it's just the joy of being saved 
that's going to be enough for us. It's just the understanding of who he is that's going to be enough for him. I don't come to Christ because I think he's going to fix my marriage or my kids or my job situation or my financial situation or my health. I'm going to come to God. Just That's going to be enough. It's enough. Paul never received anything back from the point that he got blinded by the Lord temporarily. It was enough that he was saved. It was enough that even when the prison doors were opened, he, he said, I'm not done ministering here yet. And he stayed inside the deepest, darkest parts of the prison, singing with Silas there and getting all the prisoners saved and the jail keepers saved. It wasn't about getting out of my problems or my current situation. It was like, no, that doesn't matter where I am. I'm wherever God puts me, and that's where I'm going to serve. And he was so happy to do that. He longed to be with the Lord, but was content to be on this earth as long as God wanted him to be here and to minister to the best of his ability. And he did that. Observe what I command you, God tells Moses and the people of Israel this day. Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. I think he dislikes naming that list off personally. It rhymes. But I'm going to get rid of all your enemies, I promise. Take heed to yourself. It's your responsibility to take heed to yourself. It's what it means. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going. Lest it be a snare in your midst. I underlined that and circled it. But you shall destroy their altar, break their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god for the Lord who's... uh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and here's what's going to happen. There's a five-step progression here. You make a covenant with these people in the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and they make sacrifices to the gods, and then they invite you, and you eat of the sacrifice that they offered up to these false gods. And then you take the daughters for your sons, and the daughters play the harlot then with their gods. And make your sons play the harlot with their gods. Five steps to that. I'm not saying that you could just, that's how it is, but boy, could you just say Solomon a little bit louder? Exactly what we're studying on Sunday morning. Don't make any covenants with them. You need to break down those sacred pillars and destroy those wooden images. They have no place in this land anymore. Don't make room for those things in our lives. Because although you think you can handle it, it starts off very subtly. They, who you tolerate mildly, will start playing the harlot. They'll say, why don't you come over? Just come over. It's a tiny little compromise. They don't jump right in and say, worship with us this false god and reject your god. Well, duh, no, I'm not going to do that. Come over, come over and just join. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do what we're doing. Just join us, you know. Just abstain while we partake of whatever that may be. And then you find yourself there eating or doing. And, well, it's not so bad. I mean, God didn't strike me down, so then you decide to take this daughter for your son. She'll be all right. She's like a good girl. She's all right. No. No, because this daughter's later on going to play the harlot. This can go either way. And play the harlot with these gods that you have made room for and have excused in that person's life, and now you've brought them in, and, and now your sons are going to follow after those daughters and do the same thing. It's a very dangerous progression. Don't do it, God says. I'm going to drive them out. I need you to destroy the altars and the sacred pillars and to cut down the wooden images. Don't make any room for them. They're not pretty. They're not artistic. They're not of cultural value. They're an abomination to God. Get rid of them. And they're a snare in your midst. God promises us as believers that he, by his Holy Spirit, will lead and guide us through this world. And there are pitfalls and there are snares and there are traps just waiting for us. And several times in the Psalms, the writers would say, thank you for letting their traps fall, you know, trap them, you know, or their snares caught them, or their pits they fell into themselves. All... 
that's just this world. That's how it is. And I trust the Holy Spirit to lead and navigate me through this. And I may not even be, I may be blindfolded, but I'm going to trust him and let him walk me through this. And I believe I'll go through unscathed. What he's talking about here are, I see the snare. I know it's a snare. The Holy Spirit's told me to be watchful for it, but I leave it in my midst. And not to be surprised that that's something I've got to step over every now and then. I, I've done that. Have you ever done that on the stairs? You put something on the stairs, hoping somebody might take up their personal property up to their room where it belongs. I'm not looking at anybody specifically. Kids. And Jenny's going, I'm not looking at you, JD. You know, I, <laughs> I will literally step over those things several times just to make a point for weeks sometimes. Are you ever going to pick up this stuff and take it up? But eventually I forget it's there. And because I didn't just do it and get rid of it and put it where it belongs, I'll hit that just wrong in the morning or something and roll my ankle. And, why didn't I just put that away? Now, that's a very mild picture of what God's talking about here. But you'll be warned by the Holy Spirit many, 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 many times about a certain thing in your life that needs to go. Get rid of it. Yeah, really got to do that. We need to put that in its place. No, destroy it. Get rid of it. Throw it away. Don't keep it around. Watch out. Warning after warning after warning until finally ignored enough times you, you get snared by it. You get caught. You were told not to go there. You were told by the Holy Spirit to avoid that and to walk around that or to get rid of that or to never look back at that. But you kept it in your midst, and that's what God's worried about. Don't let these people, don't make a covenant with them. Don't make a deal. Get rid of it. It's a snare in your midst. You're going to have to constantly be stepping over it. And eventually you'll forget and you'll step into it. Verse 17, you shall make no molded gods for yourselves, Aaron. Not our Aaron. Sorry, Aaron. Getting kind of specific there. Just one verse out of nowhere. By the way, don't make any molded gods, Aaron. The feast of unleavened bread. You shall keep seven days. You shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you in an appointed time of the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib, you came out of Egypt. Remember that? Yep. I want you to remember that. I want you to re- always remember the day I brought you out of the world. Don't ever forget that. It was by my strength and by my hand. And you've, I kept you from the angel of death. Remember that as you break that unleavened bread, as you drink that juice. I want you to do that. All that open the womb are mine, every male firstborn among your livestock, whether ox or sheep. But the firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. For all the firstborn of your sons shall be, you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Always has to have that penalty, that payment, that lamb for every firstborn. That's Jesus. Jesus pays for us. Cannot show up to God empty-handed. Can't get into heaven and stand there at the gates and say, God, I I don't have Jesus with me, but I've got a lot of other things I brought with me. Will any of these things work? No. I specifically told you you needed the lamb. I specifically told you not to show up empty-handed. And you have. You have to have Jesus. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time, or in harvest you shall rest. You know why he mentions that, right? Because those are the times you're most tempted to not take a rest. I got a limited, I got a window here. I got a window, I got to do it. Uh, you got to trust me. You got to trust me. And I don't mean to pick on farmers. God picks on farmers. Don't blame me. He's the one that talks about harvest and plowing. Okay. You could easily transfer that over to Kawasaki. You could easily transfer that over to any other job that you have and say, if I could just work a little overtime. That's how I'll make enough money for turns into bags of gold with holes in it. The Bible tells us that. You'll get so much extra that all of a sudden you ever see the taxes on overtime? <laughs> you never do overtime again if you understood the percentage they take out. It's not even worth it. And it's not worth the time of rest that you miss. It's not worth the time with your family that you miss. It's not worth the time with the Lord if you're single. You don't have a family. Just God says you need to rest. Take that rest. You need it. 
I want you to have that, he says. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, or the first fruits of uh, wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in a year, all your men shall appear before the Lord, the Lord God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. Neither will any man covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. It's quite a promise. It's a supernatural promise. I want you guys to all at one time, the entire nation, go and just spend time with me three times a year, and I'll be the guard while you're there. That's amazing. I mean, if you're going to take, attack a nation, you'd want them all be, you know, face down worshiping their God with their uh, all their soldier stuff left in their tents. God says, you don't need to worry about that. You just focus on me, and I'll take care of all that protection. I'll take care of all those things. You'll have plenty. Put me first. Trust me. Put me first, and I will take care of all those things. It's for your benefit to remember and come before me three times a year in worship. I like that. Of course, I like time off, too. I like vacations. I like time with the family. I like time with God. I just do. So if you picked them, I don't think we have that as a nation, but wouldn't that be neat if we just took Thanksgiving and we all just decided for one week around, not a day, the whole week, you know, just not going to do anything. Then Christmas comes. A whole week we're going to take it off. And then Easter. I guess those are three kind of godly holidays that we have. Easter, just take the whole week off. Kids are all for it, I bet. Time with dad, time with mom, time with the Lord if you're by yourself, time with family if you go back to the, I mean, you came from somebody, or go visit your parents or whatever, or grandparents, or visit somebody new or whatever. Just take some time. Three times a year. And I'll protect you if you, if you focus on me. Verse 25, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leaven. No sin. I don't want to see that. A couple times the prophets say, you know, and this is God's word through the prophets, I'm really tired of your sacrifices and your new moons and your festivals. They're nauseating to me because you show up sinful. You show up like that's what I want. Like I want homage and not obedience. You know, No, I just want you to walk with me. I want you to do what I've asked you to do. I'd rather you do that and never show up. I mean, I want both, but don't show up here. And raise your hands on Sunday morning and praise the Lord and talk about Jesus and amen. And then on Monday, go live like Satan or the devil. No. I don't want any of that leaven offered up with my sacrifice, nor shall the sacrifice of the feast of Passover be left until morning. We all know those rules and laws we've got over them. The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. Shall not boil the young goat in its mother's milk. First one's obvious, just need to honor God with what he's given you, you know. Um, He's our redeemer. It's appropriate for the redeemed to, you know, give him some honor. Don't boil the young goat in its mother's milk. Really talking about a pagan thing there. They used to do that as a fertility thing and got carried away. In fact, today in in Israel, to be kosher, you, you can't have milk and meat in the same meal or even actually in the restaurant. It's kind of interesting that way. You get a glass of water with meat, or you can go someplace else and have milk. It's, it's really, they've taken it to the extreme. That's not what he means. Then the Lord said to Moses, write these words. Don't just memorize them, and I don't want you to paraphrase me. Write these words. For according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he's there, he was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was on top of this mountain. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Now, it'd be one thing if he just didn't eat bread. You can kind of figure, man, I bet he was emaciated and tired and hungry. But no water for 40 days? That's supernatural. That's God sustaining. That's the same thing that happened to Jesus, by the way. And he wrote on the tablets, in the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. He wrote it all down and brought it down. All supernatural. Now, it was so... When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, that he looked gaunt and starving and thin. That's not what it says. Came down with the two tablets of the testimony that were Moses' hands. He came down from the mountain, and Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. The word shone there is beams of light. Just radiating the Lord. You know, not... Not figuratively, you know, literally. 
so much so that they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. Don't run away, just beams of light. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all the, that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face, covered it. It's too much, man. Too bright. Of course, being in the presence of God, you can tell when someone's been in the presence of God. You can, you can almost see a believer before they even talk to you. There's, there's a sense about them. There's a, well, you know, we even say pregnant ladies have a glow about them, kind of, you know. You can just kind of tell, you're glowing, you know. Are you pregnant? Who told you? You know, we do that. Not always, but sometimes. This is obviously much different, much more intense. But it does encourage me that the more time I spend with the Lord, Moses didn't even know it. He can't see this happening. He can't see the beams of light coming off of him. It was just, there's something about you. There's, some, there's a peace. There's a gentleness. There's a, well, for them, literally, beams of light. But for us, I don't know that I've ever had beams of light coming off my face. You can ask my wife. I don't think she's seen that. But there are times when I can come in from a study time and I just, I can sense it. Oh, man, that was great. That was a really good study time. And I'm more gracious with people and I'm more merciful and the fruit of the Spirit just kind of flows, just kind of there, you know, because you've been in the presence of God. And that's what we want as believers. We want to have that. Now, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.13 tells us that he covered his face because he didn't want them to see what was passing away. There's a little insight here. He didn't cover his face for their sake so they didn't have to be blinded by his face. He did it so that they didn't see the fading away of what was passing away or what was becoming obsolete. And Paul equates that to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant, to the covenant of if you obey me, then you can go to heaven. If you disobey me, you're going to get punishment kind of thing. That's the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is this. You're, you're not supposed to obey me, disobey me, but when you do disobey me, my son Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and he'll forgive and separate your sins as far as the east is from the west from you. That's the new covenant. The old has passed away. We really have to get a hold of that in our minds. There is no old covenant anymore. You cannot come to God that way anymore. There's only one new covenant, and that is with Jesus. So you can't even show up to God saying, hey, I'm, I'm coming to God. I'm coming to you this morning, uh, Lord, at the pearly gates with this Old Testament understanding. I think I've been pretty good. That's the rich young ruler. Didn't work. That's passed away. The new is the only thing God pays attention to. It's a new contract. The old has passed away. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Interesting. And that's where we close tonight. It is an interesting chapter. Sometimes I like to apply it or make the application, but as I was studying this and as we were singing, and looking at the world and its current state that we're in right now, um, I just I, I can't encourage you enough to really understand that this nation of Israel or you need to have this relationship with God. You have to have that. You have to be that close to him. You have to be looking at his face that intently. We're going to need to be Understand his character. Understand who he is. We're going to need to know his word. We're going to need to be led by the Holy Spirit. And you can't separate the two. They're together. Going to have an equal amount of both. We have to have the fruit of the Spirit. There's going to come a time where there's going to be nothing boastful about knowing Jesus Christ other than the fact that you know Jesus Christ. It's not going to give you an advantage to know Jesus Christ. It's going to be a disadvantage to know Jesus Christ in this world. But the advantage of knowing Jesus Christ, knowing what is waiting for you, knowing whom you serve, 
is going to be the most important thing in your life or you will compromise. It'll be an easy step for you. You just have to get to that place. And maybe you're there, and I guess I don't want to say that you're not, but I really take that away from this. I don't mean to be sober, but it's hard not to be sober right now. Um, It's going to be an interesting few years if the Lord tarries, if he doesn't come back sooner than that. I believe he's coming very soon. I don't know when, but it's going to be an interesting few years. I, I believe it's going to happen quickly, and I think we need to be very aware and alert for it in a good way. Remember, Paul says, none of these things move me. They don't move us away from God. They don't move us into fear. They don't move us into burrowing underground, you know, and hiding. But they do move us to be like him. They do move us to share louder, more boldly, walking in the Spirit, filled with the gifts of the Spirit, moving in the gifts of the Spirit, bearing fruit for the Lord. Because... That will be our only goal every morning is to wake up and tell people about this salvation we have in Jesus Christ and that they can have it too. And that will be our reward for the day. Is that Jesus has been shared and maybe received by somebody. And so tonight, if you haven't received Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you feel that urgency in that sense, tonight's the night of salvation for you. I want you to pray with me and I want you to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a decision you have to make. And you make it tonight, and you pray, and you receive him as your Savior. You know that you've sinned and separated yourself from God, that he died on the cross for your sins, that there is no other way to get to heaven but through this salvation that his Son has provided for you. And I pray that you'd pray that tonight. I hope that you'd pray that tonight if you don't know him. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for... Forgiving me for my iniquity, for my transgression, for my sins, anything that has separated me from you. You've, you've taken all the penalty that I deserve for those sins and taken them upon yourself at the cross. And you became sin for us, everything. The world's sin was poured out on you and your father's wrath was on you. And it, and it pleased him to bruise the son, your word tells us that. Because we now, as believers in your son Jesus Christ, have become your inheritance, and that's why it pleased you. So many are going to be gained by this. You'll gain so many by the death of your son Jesus, and I pray that tonight as some trust in you for salvation, Lord, that you'd rejoice and say, there's my new inheritance. And so Lord, we give you our lives tonight. We surrender our lives to you. Every aspect of it, help us to be led by your Spirit. If we don't know how, teach us to be led by your Spirit to hear your voice above all others, to obey your voice above all others, to trust your voice above all others, God. And that we'd look back, who knows how many years, and see how you've spared us from traps, snares, and pits. And we thank you for that ahead of time, that your word promises us that you'll do that. We leave ourselves in your hands, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good night, guys. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. If you need a Bible... You don't have one, grab one and take it home with you.